when are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Hi, welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And I'm Arliss Bunny. And today on Hopping Mad, I'll be talking about Charlotte. Arliss will be talking about banks or something that they do. <laughs> and we have Alex Lawson on from Social Security Works. It's going to be a great show. But first, we have a few topics to talk about. Mine is on Friday, the 23rd. It was by Visibility Day. And so... I'm just reminding all of you that I am bisexual and that bisexual folks exist, not because you need to be reminded, but just because, honestly, there are some problems. And they're not the world-crushing problems, but they're, they're frustrating. Bisexuals have a real problem with being seen and being known to exist. We are the largest group of LGBT people. So, wait, does that mean that there's a town somewhere in the Midwest that's only visible one day a year? <laughs> yeah, uh, we, uh, as, as bisexuals, we have the magical power of invisibility, and we like to say, cloaked in the shadows. The one day that we lose our invisibility powers, we've decided to make a holiday because the, we want to remind members of our community not to steal anything on the 23rd because people can actually see us. So that's why we have Bi-Visibility Day. <laughs> Bi-Visibility is about making sure that we're seen partially so that we can be more active and visible in the community, but partially so that we can find each other and be more in communication with each other. If you are bisexual, you will end up in a relationship with most likely a man or a woman. There are also a small number of people in the world who are genderqueer. But as someone who's bisexual, you fall into the background. If I do what I did and marry a woman, people are going to assume that I am straight. And if I had fallen in love with a man and married a man, people would have assumed that I was gay. But I'm neither of those things. So because of that fact, we are fighting to be visible because we are part of the LGBT community. And as the largest part, we've also been the quietest part. And I think if we were able to grow our community, we'd be able to challenge a lot of the things that affect the world around us. The problem of visibility leads to a lot of feelings of isolation and a lot of problems. As Rachel Hutchison discussed, bisexual people actually have different health outcomes that need study, that don't get studied. So Bi Visibility Day is about all of that and, you know, about really, really hilarious jokes such as now that the laws on marriage equality have passed. We greedy bisexuals can have twice as many weddings. And of course, being a bisexual, as we all know, means that you can only like two things. So I have chosen drinking in Scotland. And <laughs> Of course, of course. <laughs> but uh, Color me surprised. Right. So anyway, that's, that's by Visibility Day. And what's really striking to me, though, something that was really heartwarming is watching the Twitter feed come in and seeing all of these very, very young people, some of them in high school or middle school, coming out as bisexual. They are comfortable enough with where they are and with the friends they have around them to be able to do that. 
And that's something I can't even imagine. In high school, I only really came out to a few of my closest friends. And the ability for students nowadays to be able to come out to the whole world is a really beautiful thing. And I'm so happy that the younger generation has that. And it's really awesome to see the progress and how far we've come. And it's really awesome to see that there really isn't all that much. There's a little bit of biphobia. There's a little bit of of nonsense from various groups, the religious right and Trump supporters, obviously, rolling it by visibility day to cause problems. But except for a small amount of that, it's just a bunch of joyful people celebrating who they are. And so it's a wonderful thing. It's a good day. I get to be obnoxiously bisexual all day, which is delightful. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we have something a bit more serious to talk about now. Yeah, well, we definitely do. The Dakota Access Pipeline. This is actually very similar to the Keystone XL Pipeline, except that very few people are paying attention to it. The pipeline is a $3.8 billion pipeline, which, if it's built, it will move 470,000 barrels per day of fracked oil from the Bakken oil fields across to Illinois. It's similar to Keystone XL, but it's receiving a whole lot less publicity, and you got to ask yourself why. Is it because it's affecting fewer ranchers? Is it because there are more people of color involved? I don't know, but whatever it is, is it because there's burnout in the environmental groups? I do not know. But though it has sort of crossed media coverage a tiny bit in comparison to the size of the problem, it has been not nearly front and center enough. This pipeline will tunnel under the confluence of the Missouri and the Cannonball Rivers. And when, not if, but when it bursts, it will first pollute the only source of drinking water for the Sioux Reservation at Standing Rock, but then it'll head down the Missouri River, which, by the way, longest river in the United States. It'll head down the Missouri River all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, polluting an aquifer that supports 10 million people. It already has caused sacred burial grounds, historic villages, and religious sites to be bulldozed. So this is not screwing around people. This thing is underway. And right now, it's in a sort of holding pattern, but we can't trust that. The, you know, the black hats in this is a company called Energy Transfer Partners. And they've even gone to the extent of using guard dogs to quote unquote, protect their work site. And the dogs have already bitten a child. So, you know, these are golden people. The governor of North Dakota called out the National Guard to protect energy transfer. And the sheriff's department is blockading roads, trying to prevent people from getting to the site. The protectors, and I use that word carefully, words are important. These people are calling themselves, and they are, protectors, not protesters. And the other word that's important in all of this is that the project, the Dakota Access Pipeline, is using the word Dakota, which means friend or ally. And using that word for this project is enormously disrespectful. So who does this affect and who's involved in the, in the protection of the land here and the water rights? Most directly, it's the Lakota, Dakota, and Dakota Sioux. But First Nations people are fighting water rights-related issues all across the country. And the visibility of this site and this fight is incredibly important to them. So people from tribes all over the U.S. and Canada are participating. And they have letters of support from 180 tribes. Indigenous people from around the world 
are bearing the brunt of climate change and the climate change catastrophe. And this is from the Amazon to the Arctic, right? Indigenous people are affected by climate change very, very, very directly. So indigenous people all around the world have been bringing pressure to bear on this project. Even members of Black Lives Matter have shown up and shown support, which is pretty awesome, actually, you know, collectively, that people from a variety of issue-based concerns are gathering. There are two camps of protectors who plan to stay along the Cannonball River. There's Camp Sacred Stone, which has been there since the spring, and then there's the Red Warrior Camp, which got rolling this summer, early in the summer. Dozens of teepees, hundreds of tents, at least a thousand people are there. Tribes from all across the U.S. and Canada are represented physically on the ground at the site. Huge camp kitchens are feeding everyone. There's classrooms, legal aid, sweat lodges, and no commerce, alcohol, drugs, or weapons are allowed. And I thought this was interesting. It's become a healing experience. People are talking about it in this way. Hopefully a healing experience for the river, but definitely between several tribes who have long held animus. And I love this from an article in The Guardian. The reporter is saying, The next morning, a small man came up and greeted me, introduced himself as Frank. From right here, he said, a member of the Standing Rock Sioux. Somewhere in the conversation, he said, I wake up happy every day about this. And he's talking then about the gathering there at Cannonball River. I asked him how this had changed the past, thinking of the losses the Lakota faced over the past 150 years, but he heard the question differently. He mentioned that their old enemies, the Crow and the Cheyenne, had come to stand with them and that the old divisions were over, unquote. And I think as we get into these broader-based issues, that's the kind of healing that matters and that changes the conversation. I think that's really important. Standing Rock Tribal Chairman David Archambault has said, whether it's gold from the Black Hills or hydropower from the Missouri or oil pipelines that threaten our ancestral inheritance, the tribes have always paid the price for American prosperity. And we know that. We've talked about that in the past on this show. Will has talked about that in particular. On the 20th of September, Archambault addressed the UN Human Rights Commission. And he said that the pipeline violates the UN's Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, and he called on the UN to use its influence and platform. So it's interesting. The U.S. government, first, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers approved the pipeline, and they had agreed that they would issue the permits. But then on September 9th, they put all that on hold. And in a joint press conference, the U.S. Army, which is responsible for the Corps of Engineers, The Department of Justice and the Department of Interior announced that they've agreed to meet in the fall with tribes to discuss infrastructure-related reviews, the protection of tribal lands, the protection of tribal resources, treaty rights, and whether new legislation is needed to pursue the resultant goals. Basically, the U.S. government caved, not due to domestic pressure necessarily, but due to tremendous international pressure. So this really, when you think about it, can possibly be truly transformative for Native rights, for Sioux history, and for the government's acknowledgement of the intersection between the climate and First Nations. And I think that if we can keep a hold of this thing and continue to pay attention to this thing and not let it fall out of our front of mind issues, that we can stop this as well. And I think it absolutely must be done. It's absolutely essential. Will? Coming up on Hopping Mad, I will be talking about the situation in Charlotte.
back to Hopping Mad. I'm going to talk about Charlotte. As we're recording this, it is Friday the 23rd. So information may come out over the weekend that won't be able to go into this broadcast for obvious reasons. But that's okay, because part of what we're going to be talking about is the way that journalists and I think the way that all of us ought to deal with situations like Charlotte in our conversation and as we're communicating information. And I want to begin with a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It is not enough for me to stand before you tonight and condemn riots. It would be morally irresponsible for me to do that without at the same time condemning the contingent intolerable conditions that exist in our society. These conditions are the things that cause individuals to feel that they have no other alternative than to engage in violent rebellions to get attention. And I must say tonight that a riot is the language of the unheard. The second quote comes from Toussaint Romain, who is a public defender in Charlotte. He was standing between the police and the protesters during one of the most violent nights of the protests when rubber bullets were fired, when tear gas was fired. What he said when CNN approached him with a camera was, we can't lose any more lives. I'm a public defender. I can't represent any more people. We need to take a stand and do it the right way. People are hurting. People are upset. People are frustrated. People need leaders. I'm not trying to be that leader. I'm trying to prevent people from being hurt. That's what he said as he stood between protesters and police. There were preachers of every color who also tried to stand between protesters and police and Many of the, the black preachers who were there were trying to appeal for calm. What I personally witnessed in social media and videos on Periscope were individual protesters who were trying to be peaceful and trying to keep things peaceful. At one point, there was a protest where a group of people blocked one of the major highways in Charlotte. And... The protester was saying, and this is not going to be a direct quote because it was a live broadcast that's no longer up. He said, look, our lives could be ended at any moment. So what we are doing here tonight is peacefully interrupting the lives of the people on this motorway. We are asking them to stop what they are doing for just a moment and to maybe thinking about stopping what's happening to our community. And as he said, we are doing this peacefully a protester who he did not know, who was not with his group, approached one of the cars with a baseball bat and took a swing at it. The driver in the car backed up and drove back down the highway. The vast majority of the people who are at these protests are attempting to do it the right way, attempting to do it peacefully. There is a small percentage of people who are extremely angry about what has been happening to the black community. And I can't really blame them because of the intolerable conditions that exist in the United States for black men. And I have to say, with the kind of sense of who I am and with the kind of anger that I have when things happen to me, I'm really not sure that I wouldn't be right in there with people breaking windows if I lived in the same conditions and if it was my family getting attacked and if it was people who I felt a deep connection to. And if I walked down the street every day with a fear that I might be shot or that my younger cousins 
or my nieces or nephews might be shot. I have to condemn both the violence and the intolerable conditions. You know, what this reminds me of is the protests that happened the night that Harvey Milk was killed. And I was there, and I remember seeing people breaking windows, business windows, and seeing cars get um, destroyed, seeing cars get burned. And I didn't do that and didn't participate in that. But I remember thinking, damn, I get it. I get it why those people are doing that. And and the problem with it is that it doesn't move us forward. But there's a point in time at which people break. Yeah. Yeah, there is. And in Charlotte, they're at the breaking point. Look, we all participate in social media. So I think it behooves us to have a level of responsibility. There are witnesses, uh, some of whom I'm going to retweet their accounts, who say that Keith Lamont was unarmed. The police say that he was armed. I don't know what the truth is, but I want the witnesses to be heard. And I also... No, isn't North Carolina an open carry state where the police don't even have the uh, right to ask you if you have a permit? Yeah, it is an open carry state. However, if you have certain kinds of permits, you are required to tell the police, I have a gun. There's, there's various laws. And, on, and to that end, there was a white man in a car who drove into a crowd of protesters who started pushing on his car and then waved a gun out of the window. It's not just black people who are behaving irresponsibly in Charlotte. There were white folks waving guns. This was not a police officer. This was just some guy in a car who threatened protesters with with what looked like to my eye an attempt to run them down and then waved a gun at them. I'm not sure what happened there, but that's one of the things that you could have seen if you looked at the video feeds from that night. So... I've seen a video from someone claiming to be his wife. The video claims it is it is his wife there and trying to tell the officers that he doesn't have a gun. There is a video of people who claim to be witnesses saying that he didn't have a gun. The police are saying that he did have a gun and they aren't releasing any of the videos and they aren't releasing any of their information. The responsible thing to do is to make sure that the witness accounts are heard as you know, journalists, I'm going to, I'm going to tweet those out and I'm going to try to include a link to them in our, in our blog post, but we need to make sure that those accounts are heard, but we don't necessarily need to say this man was unarmed or to say this man was armed. The appropriate thing to do is say, we don't know, and we won't be able to make that judgment until the police release their information. And prove to us whether or not that they are lying about this situation. We should not take anyone's word at face value. That being said, even if Keith Lamont had a gun, and even if he engaged in some sort of action where the police would be justified in this circumstance, even if that was true, the people who live in Charlotte would still have a reason for their anger. One of the quotes I have heard many times throughout my life from black Methodists, especially black Methodist preachers, is that when your cup of suffering is already full, only a drop can make it run over. And that is 
the situation here. Well, and the other part of that is everyone breaks under torture at some point in time. Everyone yeah. breaks. Absolutely. And the situation that the black community is in is torturous. They don't have access to the same kind of health care that Arliss and I do. They don't have access to the same kind of opportunity that we do. They live under the constant threat of violence from the people who are supposed to protect them. The situation affecting the black community in this country is intolerable. And so we need to talk about the media and what the media ought to be doing. And Arliss, you had something that you wanted to say about that. Yeah. You know, when we talk about what the media should or shouldn't be talking about and the need for the media to actually separate fact from opinion, it even applies to things like the recent commander in chief forum. There is a difference and it is appropriate for moderators to moderators slash journalists and that would be, of course, not inclusive of Matt Lauer, clearly not a journalist, and he's proven mm-hmm. that six ways from side. So much, he's proven it so much that NBC executives apologize for his performance. But the concept that journalists have to start verifying facts, and they have stopped doing that in an effort to bend to the both sides do it meme, they have stopped doing that. And I think that It affects not only the U.S. election, but it gets into all of this stuff, too. It touches everything. When journalists aren't doing their job, it touches everything. Yeah. There's a statement that you make anytime someone takes an oath in a courtroom, which is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We often aren't as a collective group that is the journalist perfection. We often don't tell the truth about what's happening to black people. And often when we do tell the truth, it's not the whole truth. And sometimes when we provide the whole truth, we provide a lot of things that aren't necessary to make that less impactful. When it comes to things affecting black America, the media is completely failing. The media is not challenging the fact-free nonsense that is spewed from all corners of the internet and from all corners of the elite media about the black community and what affects them. Journalists are not challenging police departments who lie. Journalists are not trying to protect black America from a government that is killing them. And that is pretty much the main role of the free press in free societies, is to inform the people, is to challenge the government. But that's not what journalists are doing in this case. If you look at journalism on Black Lives Matter, rather than addressing any of the issues raised by protesters, what the media so often does is to show some sensationalist footage of riots, to make themselves the story, and then to just throw up their hands and say, well, I guess there's never going to be any solution to these problems. Not to cover anything in depth not to inform the American people about why folks are in the streets, not to inform the American people about what the solutions might be, not to make sure that people have the facts. And that's what needs to start happening. So at this hour and on this day, it's, it's Friday at 3.30 p.m., we don't know whether Keith Lamont Scott had a gun. We don't know. 
And that's okay. We can still talk about why people are in the streets. We can still do our job without all the information. And I think it behooves us on social media not to spread disinformation and to be curious and to be comfortable with spaces where we don't know. Yeah. In any case, coming up on Hopping Mad, Arliss is going to be talking about banking. Stay with us. back on Hopping Mad. And last week, I got really, really detailed, and it was a really complex subject. So this week, I'm keeping it simple, and I'm talking about what do banks do. The common view is called fractional reserve banking. It's also the money multiplier view, and it's basically gold standard thinking. In this view, the supply of money is solely controlled by the central bank. And because of this, economists say that the money supply is exogenic. In other words, it comes from the outside, basically the outside of the private sector. This is so much so that most economics textbooks present the supply of money as inelastic with respect to interest rates. Even you and I can see that this isn't the case, because if it was, when the Fed dropped the interest rate at or near the zero bound, and the Fed was dumping in boatloads of money into the economy via quantitative easing, we would have seen loans to small businesses and consumer loans open up. But we didn't, right? None of us saw that. In fact, small business loans are only barely opening up now. The biggest problem with trying to use monetary policy instead of fiscal policy to fine-tune the economy is that monetary policy, which is what the Fed does, is like pushing on a string. So let's talk about how money is really created. And this is observationally correct. And again, I've said this about modern monetary theory several times. A lot of the basic nuts and bolts of modern monetary theory really aren't theory. They're simply observational. They're accounting. They are simply true. And this is another one of those things. MMT economists call this endogenic money because it's created inside the private sector. So here are the steps in the creation of credit. First, someone, and that's an individual, a family, a small business, a big business, decide they want credit in order to buy something. Second, banks theoretically, determine if the request is creditworthy. And of course, this didn't happen in the housing crisis, but it is what's supposed to happen. Third, the bank determines how it views the future. It doesn't just loan based on creditworthiness. It needs to have some sense of whether the economy is going up or down in the future. Fourth, if the bank decides to grant the credit, then it just goes in and marks up the account of the entity receiving the credit by making an entry in the computer. These are pixels. At the time this transaction is made, the bank is not passing on anything it already has. It's passing on pixels. That's why the word loan is not really accurate. When I loan you a teacup, it's a teacup I already have. When a bank grants you credit, it's not necessarily backed by anything yet. They are creating money ex nihilo from nothing. At the time the credit is granted and the account of the creditor is marked up, neither the customer nor the bank has anything backing the assets. The bank is not using other people's money. They're not loaning you the money of your next door neighbor. The bank is not an intermediary between savers and investors. So next, fifth, the bank evaluates its current reserves and it either utilizes them or it borrows the necessary funds. The decision to grant credit, in other words, the decision 
to provide the money to the person or entity that needs the money is made regardless of the reserve position of the bank. The bank does not necessarily have that money. And reserves for banks are purposefully kept low, as low as they possibly legally can be. And in fact, this is one of the battles that we've been going through with Dodd-Frank, because Dodd-Frank wants to require that bank reserves be higher and banks want those reserves lower. The reason that banks want minimal reserves is that money that's sitting is money that's not working. They want money to be working. Sixth, if a bank doesn't have the reserves available, it borrows from them on the interbank market. And in the U.S., we call that the federal funds market. Seventh, the bank makes its profit on the differential between the cost of the money it borrowed and the interest the customer is paying. Period. That's where the money is made on a loan. It's that differential. And I should say here, and this is something that most of the texts don't say, but it's worth noting that a bank also makes a decision about opportunity cost. It may be more efficient for it to use its reserves in one way as opposed to another based on the value of one opportunity versus another. So to summarize everything I've just said, to summarize this section, bank managers and loan officers generally do not know and do not care about the current reserve position of the bank. They make their decision based on creditworthiness. Banks can always get the funds they need, either on the interbank market or at the discount window of the central bank. Where they get the money determines the profitability of the loan or the credit that's been granted. So credit is backed by reserves after the fact, always. So let's talk about the Federal Reserve's role in this or our central bank's role in this. A central bank will always lend to any creditworthy bank at the discount window on demand at the will of the bank. Again, at the will of the bank, not at the will of the Fed, at the will of the bank. And that's that pushing on a string thing. The Fed cannot force banks to make loans. So new money is only generated out into the economy when it's requested by banks at the discount window. The Fed never runs out of reserves and it cannot, except of course, and here I give you the debt ceiling stupidity asterisk. But beyond that, interbank money is not new money. It's just money that's in the private sector put in another place. But Money that comes out of the discount window, that's new money. Just like money that's spent out into the economy through fiscal spending, that's new money that is newly created. Because banks make loans based on creditworthiness and projections of the future and never based upon available reserves, the Fed cannot use favorable monetary policy to get banks to lend more. And again, and I'll say this for the third time, that's that pushing on a string thing. The Fed cannot drive money out into the economy very efficiently. So all of this means that the supply of money in the private sector is determined by the private sector and it is endogenic. The price of money, the interest rate, is determined by the central bank and this is exogenic. And that is all the central bank is in a position to do. Next up on Hopping Mad, we have Alex Lawson of Social Security Works.
Laughing Mad. Alex Lawson is the Executive Director of Social Security Works, the convening member of the Strengthened Social Security Coalition, a coalition made up of over 340 national and state organizations representing over 50 million Americans. Social Security Works fights to protect and improve the economic security of all Americans. Alex has appeared on numerous TV and radio outlets, including C-SPAN, Fox News, and Al Jazeera, and he's a frequent panelist on The Big Picture with Tom Hartman. He's also the owner of We Act Radio, and I should mention that Hopping Mad is the Monday lead-in on Netroots Radio for K-Grow in the Morning, but K-Grow in the Morning is part of the We Act Daily Morning lineup. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, I should say right here at the top that because I'm a modern monetary theory economics wonk and I talk about the mechanics of MMT regularly, I have spent time explaining to our listeners why we in the MMT world know that Social Security cannot and will not fail for any reason other than the will of Congress as an issuer of sovereign floating fiat currency, which holds all the debt in our own currency, the U.S. can always make any payment it needs over time, period. But you and listeners, this is important in this conversation. Alex lives in the real world, and he has to work in a world where um, it's already an uphill battle in Washington. He has to speak the language of essentially the political ecosystem there. So when he's talking about ways to pay for Social Security, though that pay-for language that I so speak about so frequently on this show is um, legitimate in that Alex is living in the world he has to live in to function in D.C. So Alex, what has been successful has been talking about lifting the cap. And would you talk to us about what lifting the cap means and why it will work? Definitely. Um, so right now, people pay in on the first $118,500 of their wages um, into Social Security. And the vast majority of Americans, that's 100% of their wages. And everyone's very familiar with that. We see that money come out of our paycheck every paycheck, right? And that's why poll after poll after poll after poll shows that Americans, regardless of political affiliation, Republican, Democrat, Independent, self-identified Tea Partiers, union-led households, they all say above 80% do not cut my benefits because they understand that's literally reaching in their pockets into our pockets and stealing our money by cutting our benefits. And 80% um, it, of Americans don't agree on basically anything else. On anything, exactly. There was actually a Pew uh, study on the polarization of America. It was the increasing polarization on America. And it, it found Americans are increasingly polarized on everything except Social Security. Um, everybody agrees on Social Security. There's only this small group of people, um, greedy liars on Wall Street, and they're minions in D.C., and uh, they just want to steal that Social Security. They see this as an opportunity to get their hands on the $2.8 trillion in the trust fund. Uh, but more importantly, they just want to get that fire hose of money into their coffers. Um, Social Security's administrative costs are incredibly low. It's an incredibly efficient system. Less than one penny of every dollar paid in in premiums comes out. Uh, I'm sorry. Less than one penny of every dollar goes to pay for the entire administration of the, of the system. So it's a one, less than 1% administrative cost. And as you and your listeners obviously 
Wall Street sees that as a missed opportunity, right? They would whack on another 25% admin costs um, so that they could buy another gold helicopter uh, that flies out of their golden yachts. And another 5% research cost. There's nothing in the world I can think of that is that efficient. Exactly, except for Social Security. And that's why they hate it. I mean, you know that. They hate it because it works. They hate it because Social Security is the exact proof. It puts the total lie to their uh, framing that the government can't do anything, that we can't do things together, and that in the private industry is the way to go with everything. Because they want that because that's how they profit. Exactly. Um, and they've got um, economists at the Congressional Budget Office backing them up, don't they? So that's, an, that's a really uh, interesting kind of backdoor attack that they're taking right now. Um, the CBO, we, we've done a tremendous job moving the landscape on expansion. So like in 2010, the only discussion in D.C. was, of course, Social Security is going to be cut. The only question is by how much. And now we've got on the Democratic side, at least, the discussion is, of course, benefits are going to be expanded. The only question is by how much. Now, when we talk about how we're going to pay for it, I will tell you that uh, Nancy Altman, uh, co- founding co-director of Social Security Works, and me and Eric Kingston, the other founding co-director, we all completely agree with the idea that it is, there is no question of affordability, that, there, that it is not actually a ledger that matters. What matters is the values that the American people have. We can, of course, afford uh, our social insurance system. It's around 6% of our GDP right now, um, which is very low compared to other OECD countries. Um, The only question is of values, because we're the wealthiest nation in the world at the wealthiest point in our history. So, of course, we can afford it. But in the rulemaking, the rule books here in D.C., you do have to actually say, okay, this is how we would pay for these expanded benefits. And so most of the bills come at it by modifying or eliminating the cap. So they say, we're going to um, pay for expanding benefits for everyone. Uh, this is Senator Sanders' bill. By taking the cap, and we're going to eliminate it on people over $250,000, and we're going to include all of their income, so not just their wages, but also their unearned income, their investment income. Um, and, and that's, that's how we're going to pay is. for it. And that's, you know, we've got the actuaries, who, uh, Social Security actuaries, who, who say this is what you can do with that money. Now, what the greedy liars on Wall Street have done, and well, the Republicans... Can we ask that question specifically? If we're trying to raise the cap, we're talking about increasing the benefits. That's where you've changed the conversation to talk about the in, the increasing the benefits. So what can we do with that? How much can we raise those benefits? So uh, it depends on – there's a lot of answers to that. But I'm going to stick to Senator Sanders' bill just so that people can go and look at one. There's actually – you know, a multitude of ways that we can expand benefits. Social Security works. We have our own plan called the All Generations Plan. Um, and we do things like we add more benefits. We not only expand benefits so people's checks would increase, but we would add paid family leave um, into the system, like most other Western countries have paid family leave as a social insurance system. But Senator Sanders' bill, what it does is it expands benefits in three ways. There's a a thing called the special minimum, and that's the lowest benefit 
Um, and by increasing that, you, you're increasing benefits for folks who have had low wages throughout their working life. Um, so you're saying that even if, because it's a social insurance program, the more you pay in, the higher your benefits are. But at the low end, we're going to say no matter if you how much you pay in at the low end, we're going to increase the amount that you get. So there's a, a new special minimum. And that's a targeted increase uh, for poorer Americans. It also is going to use a more generous cost of living, um, the COLA uh, cost of living. Um, the, it, it currently uses a, the, a CPI that totally underestimates the cost that people uh, are facing. And it would switch to the CPIE, which to be honest is not that much better. It's slightly better, but it is still wildly underestimating the costs people on fixed incomes are facing. Uh, with 5% increases in drug prices and medical inflation at 5% year over year over year, last year the COLA was zero. Next year the COLA will be 0.2%. So Senator Sanders' bill would increase that a little bit. Um, I actually think we need to be talking about much more radical um, measures. And then finally, Senator Sanders' bill includes an across-the-board benefit increase for everybody so that their benefit check goes up, uh, a, not by a lot, but by a, a bit every month. Um, and that is uh, kind of a basket of increases that Senator Sanders is proposing. It, shorthanded, it's an across-the-board benefit increase along with targeted increases. Um, Secretary Clinton and She's running on a plan that is more just the targeted increases. So it doesn't increase benefits for everybody. Um, but if we modify the cap in the way that Senator Sanders lays out, we can pay for an across-the-board and targeted increases. Um, so that was a long answer to your question. <laughs> so and then, the, doesn't the cap discriminate against people who have more than one job? Um, or doesn't actually, sure. actually the, just not necessarily the cap, but the, well, actually that's true because if one of my employees works in two or three other places as an employer, I don't coordinate with them and find out, you know, at what point I should stop taking social security out of my, in other words, I don't have any way to know how much my employee has been paid by other employers. So I keep pulling social security indefinitely up to $118,000. And mm -hmm. the, I see what you're saying. But so social security, in a couple of places, they can't collect uh, that keeps coming out. Correct. Um, not really. I mean, if you hit the if this is a, like a tax question, but if you have, let's say, three W-2 jobs yes. um, and in total, those three W-2 jobs uh, actually cross the cap but all three of the employers pay in, Social Security will actually say at what point you hit the cap and that money will come back both the, the employee side and the employer side. Oh, it does. I did not know that. Okay. So, I mean, the, that would be if, the, if it was done unknowingly, right? But also if people are making above $118,500 through a multitude of of various um, W-2 employments, they should actually figure out how they want to, to do that because they don't owe right now on anything above 118500 
and the wheels of you know waiting for that to happen automatically although social security is incredibly efficient at things like that it's it's obviously in a person's best interest to keep an eye on their own finances and withholdings right uh, so let so, me get back to one thing yeah. just because and it's a large circle to complete but with all of that that we just discussed what wall street and their minions have done is they're going to the cbo and the republicans appointed a peer ideologue to head the cbo uh he's a mercatus center scholar yeah. uh, mercatus center funded by the Koch brothers i mean a real ideologue um and this is you know an ideologue in charge of the so supposedly neutral referees so what they do is they come out with brand new, right, like really huge changes in the numbers um, that say actually modifying the cap in that way is not going to give you that much money. Um, and they say, according to our models, people will change their behavior in such a way that it won't actually capture that much money. And therefore, you can't pay for the expanded benefits by just scrapping the cap or modifying the cap. You have to cut benefits. So see, that's what they were after. They're after making the landscape so that you have to cut benefits. Um, does that make sense? It's a really right. sneaky way of going at it. Um, but it, I mean, it was just on the Hill yesterday. There was a hearing that the Republicans had where they kind of faced the actuaries. And luckily, by law, Social Security only has to function by um, the, the actuaries who are – it's all they do. They spend their entire job is to just look at Social Security and make sure that it is in actuarial balance and to predict um, based on life expectancy and other things how changes would affect the system. I know that's super wonky, but it was your lead-in no, starting yeah. with MMT that I figured your audience <laughs> are interested in this stuff. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, so one of the things that we've, we've talked about is that there's another way to generate increased flow to the Social Security Trust Fund, and that's to increase the minimum wage, as in what the Fight for 15 folks are doing, and Definitely. also to increase wages to middle class. Does your organization support Fight for 15 and that sort of thing? Yes, we we have a very expansive view of what Social Security is. Um, our view is in line with the founders of Social Security, Francis Perkins, um, FDR, obviously, Eleanor Roosevelt, and this brain trust of people who they understood that what we were trying to build, and it would be a process, and each generation would do their part, but what we're trying to build is, is cradle-to-grave economic security for all Americans. Um, and in terms of wages, the number one predictor of retirement security is higher wages. It's economic security in the working, in a person's working life. So raising the minimum wage and raising uh, wages across the board is the, num is the biggest thing uh, that we could do to support Social Security. Ending the gender pay gap, right, in one right. swoop would also add billions and billions into the, into the system. Um, having comprehensive immigration reform is actually, according to the numbers, is the single largest policy change you could do, like in one, that would, um, that would increase the solvency of the system. Um, so all of those things are, 
we we don't only you know say we support those we work in solidarity with the movements that are fighting for these in in ways that you know are authentic and where we can help so we're we're big believers that this is that social security is just one facet of a multifaceted economic security program um and that that's what the founders believed in that's why they built it they would they would be very proud of us on the one hand and they would be very disappointed in us on a few others for example i am positive if you read their works they would be shocked that we still don't have national health care that we still do not have single payer health care and they would be like why that would answer like half of the quote unquote problems that you have in your budget forecasting more than that. It's almost the entirety come from excess healthcare costs, which come from uh, the private industry, uh, pharmaceutical drug corporations, health insurers, big hospital, um, seeing people's health as profit centers. Um, So a full nationalized uh, single-payer healthcare system is definitely something that the, the founders of Social Security also envisioned. And so we, we feel like fighting on all of these fronts at once is actually the, the best way to, uh, to complete our mission, which is, as I said, very an expansive view of increased economic security for all Americans. The fastest way to increase heat in the U.S. economy right now would be to increase benefits paid by Social Security, Right. If you wanted to drive money into this economy and drive spending in this economy, you increase Social Security benefits, right? Exactly. I mean, uh, if you want to see an an interesting one, one that I saw is like um, it was a it it, it was evidence of how far we've changed the conversation. It was um, when Larry Summers at the Brookings (laughs) Institution was saying that uh, fiscal policy that would have the most bang for the buck in to increase the economy was increasing Social Security benefits. And I was like, man, we have moved things along when you hear that from that man out of that institution. Uh, but, you know, it, it's so obvious that once we start seeing Social Security as a solution and not a crisis, that which is the fact Social Security is a solution, not a problem, um, then you see the fact that um, the vast majority of people who are receiving Social Security benefits, they spend 100% of those benefits into the economy, uh, you know, almost immediately. And so if you increase those benefits, that money is going directly into the economy. Um, there's, a, there's actually a great, um, there's a great research project. It's called uh, um, Social Security Spotlight, and I can't remember the URL. I think it's just that. But if you just Google Social Security Spotlight, they actually highlight the economic impact with all of the um, the spend-on uh, influences that Social Security benefits have in local economies around the country. So I just I, – I, it, it's rare that I get to talk about this aspect of it, and so I, I'm happy to because this is one of the things that I think is – least understood in uh, D.C., unfortunately, that if you increased Social Security benefits, the, the, the impact of that on local economies would be massive, um, and it would be so incredibly helpful to kick-starting um, the economy. 
And Social Security adds neither to the debt nor the deficit, correct? Exactly. That's If you go and if you are kind of a penchant for listening to boring things, if you go and listen to Larry Summers at that Brookings Institution thing, which the reason that's a big deal is because this man is kind of like the epitome of establishment thought, right? And um, he definitely is not someone who four years ago would be talking about increasing Social Security benefits. But and now that's that why that's we the, fought him so hard, you know, fought so hard against having him as the Fed chair. Exactly. And I mean, you know, this, exactly. So when this man says it, uh, you know, you know something's happening here. But his main point that, uh, when he was making that is that um, because Social Security does not increase the deficit or the debt, um, it increasing its benefits would be a great way of increasing macroeconomic activity. Um, so yes, that's exactly right. Now, there's a new report out and Social Security, for instance, in Indiana alone, the Social Security Administration has had to cut 302 employees since 2011 because Congress has cut the Social Security budget by 10%, the administrative budget by 10%. Can you give us some examples of how these cuts are affecting Americans and, you know, even just how it affects people on a day-to-day basis? Because you can't get to anybody or it's harder to get to people to ask questions, right? Yeah, and, I mean, it affects people. This is... This is um, it. Because they are losing the the war on Social Security coming straight at it, um, meaning all they want is to destroy the program, dismantle it and sell it off piece by piece. This is the greedy liars on Wall Street. And since we are somewhat winning that by changing the conversation, what they've done is they've gone and they're, they're trying to flank us uh, with these backdoor attacks. One of them is working the refs and cooking the books with CBO that I talked about earlier. But this one uh, is really a, it's the slimiest of them all. Um, I can, you, you see it across government. It's a right-wing attack. It, you can kind of, it, right. it was used against the post office. And I think I've heard it said this way, and it's very evocative, that it's kneecapping the mailman and then complaining that the mail is late. Right. And so what they're doing is they're actually cutting the administrative budget of Social Security. And they have for six years in a row just cut it to the bone. And now they are sawing into the bone. uh, And then they are complaining about the services provided by Social Security as they are cutting off all the resources to it. What that looks like for the American people it means closed offices. It means the office that you've been going to for years or the office that is in your town that you plan to go to, that office is no longer there. Now you have to go dozens of miles or hundreds of miles to the nearest office. It means in the offices that are open, there are less people working there. It means that the people who are working there, they're not hiring new people. So they're laying people off through attrition, which is the absolute I mean, that is the definition of pennywise pound foolish. You're losing the institutional knowledge um, so quickly. The 1-800 number staffing is down. So you have longer wait times on the phone, longer wait times in person. Um, the, there, there are services like language access services and access services for folks with disabilities um, that are being restricted. So just across the board, you're seeing a restriction of services um, and, and it's really despicable. And obviously, I, I love to talk. So 
rein me in if you want, or you want to look at, at, at one of these in particular. But I want to tell you the grossest part of this whole attack on the administrative budget. Remember when I said that Social Security is the most efficient program, right? Less than one penny of every dollar that you pay into the system goes yeah. to fund the administration. But here's the important point. It's still your penny, that one penny from what yeah, we pay in, it's, it's still funded. our money. Yeah, It's our money, and somehow Congress, it's through a trick in the law, right? It makes no sense, but it is, this is the way the law is. The Congress gets to tell SSA how to spend money that is not coming from the Congress. So, like, it is definitely the, uh, it is insult to injury. First, they're closing our offices, and... Those are our offices. We paid for them already, and yet somehow the Congress is saying that they have the ability to do that. It's really despicable, and right now it's a showdown. So if your listeners could do one thing to fight back these greedy liars in, in, uh, on Wall Street, it's call your members of Congress right now and demand that they replace all cuts to the Social Security budget because everyone knows it's a budget fight right now. That is one of the most despicable um, things that's, that's going on in the budget fight right now is, is really continuing this assault on services that we earned um, through, our, through paying into this system. And we at Hopping Mad concur with that. Unfortunately, we have run out of time for the broadcast portion of this interview. Alex, thank you so much for being with us. All of our listeners, stay tuned. Kegro in the Morning is next here on Netroots Radio. We're back on Hopping Mad. And the Indiana Senate race, Alex, is uh, Democrat Evan Bayh versus Republican Todd Young. And they are absolutely duking it out over Social Security. That's what's running in the media here, and uh, which actually encourages me. It encourages me to see a Democrat standing up and defending Social Security, even though Evan By, not my favorite Democrat necessarily, but dang, he's doing well on this, and as are the super PACs that are supporting him. So one of the things he's talking about is that uh, Todd Young supports uh, Speaker Ryan's budget. Tell us what Speaker Ryan's budget has in store for Social Security. So I love all of these questions. You're laying out like many areas that I love to talk about. If I could um, return to the actual question and actually talk a little bit about your setup, because the fact that Evan Bai is running so hard on Social Security is a big deal. Yes. Right. I mean, as you noted, it is a big deal. This is not a man who you would say is a, um, a like an. Or let's put it this way: a few years ago, you never would have expected him. You could have made money betting against him talking about Social Security, unless it was in the sort the sort of like DC establishment speak um, that was code words for cutting benefits and and. And that is actually, there's a political price that he's paying right now because he did flirt with, the, um, with that sort of grand bargaineering in the past. What I like to call this is, um, I'm sure you saw, he's got to pull a Van Hollen because Van Hollen was in a very similar situation. You know, in 2010, the president, uh, Obama, was the one who pushed forward this Bull Simpson commission that was pushing this 
everything on the table approach to Social Security, which is just code for cutting benefits of some people and increasing taxes of some people. And But when Van Hollen uh, decided to run for Senate in Maryland against Donna Edwards, who had been a champion on expansion, the first thing that Van Hollen did was get right on Social Security. And he, and he, he did pay a price for it, right? And that's right. exactly as it should be. If you're wrong on Social Security, even for a little bit, uh, you, you will pay a political price. But the fact that all of these um, Democrats are getting right on Social Security is, again, just validation that there has been a shift, that the gra- center of gravity has moved, that Evan Bayh is running strongly as a champion of Social Security. Now, I will tell you that uh, what I would love to see, and I think it would be, it would be of great benefit to him, is full-throated endorsement of expansion from him. Right? I, I would love to see him get really strongly behind expanding benefits. Um, and yeah, President Obama created the happy, space. I'll be happy to just have him not vote against us. It's yes, you know, no, exactly. with Evan Bayh, you take what you can get, and I and I do think that as a very pragmatic Democrat, he, you know, this guy isn't my favorite Democrat on the planet, but he's getting my money in this campaign because we have to flip the Senate. When everything Alex is talking about, folks, it is better if we have a Democratic Senate. Everything, you know. It isn't just having a Democrat in the White House. It's having Democrats in in the Senate and the House. So that's why down-ticket races are so much more important this year than they've been in the past, even. And especially your Senate race is one of the most critical races. If we're going to have a chance of flipping the Senate, which is really, I mean, in many ways, the only way that it's primarily the only way that we're going to enact any good agenda and it is really our best bulwark against a bad agenda and the senate map in 2018 is incredibly against us so we really need to win this year so yes i think that your uh, race in indiana is incredibly important and um i i think that evan Bayh has a very clear path because president obama has got right on social security um and so have all democrats across the country so i think that it's right in line with um this 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 shift that we're seeing uh where social security expansion uh is the new center of the democratic party and that makes it 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 it's so important because what it makes easy for voters for who for far too long it's been a little bit unclear as to which party is on their side when it comes to social security right it was right. it was a little bit muddled and now you're like how can it be muddled the democrats are the party that created social security and they're the party that are going to fight to prevent all cuts to your benefit and they're going to fight to increase your benefits on the other hand the republicans led by Speaker Ryan, led by Mitch McConnell. I don't know what Trump's doing. He's not a leader. He's a clown. But he, uh, you know, the, the platform includes all of the wish list of the greedy liars on Wall Street, privatization, uh, full benefit cuts, the whole thing. And that is what the Republicans fight for. So now this election, for the first time in far too long, there's a really clear choice from the top of the ticket, Hillary Clinton, on down to your House race, the Democrats are the party that are fighting for Social Security, and the Republicans are the party that are fighting to 
steal your benefits by cutting your benefits, giving those right to their uh, friends on Wall Street. I have one wonky question, and then I know Will has some really, like, core questions, and I think we probably have to keep it short because I know you have to be someplace. So I'll ask one more question, and then I'll turn it over to Will. What is the infinite time horizon, and why is it a problem? So it's a really good one. Um, Like I said, I really enjoy all of your questions. Um, The infinite time horizon... It, the easiest way to understand this is that remember that that uh, that working the refs I was talking about with the CBO and how right. they're they're changing their models. That's what the infinite time horizon was. It was the last time they did this. They needed to to make it look like Social Security is unaffordable, and so it's this stupid. They it's it's actually saying this. It's like well over infinity you can't pay for it right now. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, over infinity, the universe runs out of energy. You know, like infinity is a really long time. It's longer so it's than the sun joke. will be in the sky. Exactly. It's a joke. But all it is is it's actually a way of working the refs to make the picture look bad. Um, I've, I, I can sum a lot of this up, actually, in one time um, a minion of Pete Peterson's accidentally told the truth, which is a really, I love it when they do that. Um, and she just, she, she laid out the con in stark relief. And so I'm just going to state it. And all of these are ways of accomplishing this con, which is all it is. It's a con against the American people. And this is what she said, the minion of the greedy liars on Wall Street. She said, uh, paraphrasing, but this is what she said. The goal is to convince people they're going to get nothing that way they will accept less than they're owed. Yeah. And that is why that's the political agenda by talking about social security uh, in terms of absolute numbers, as opposed to the percentage of the shortfall. For example, I think the projected shortfall for social security for the next 50 years is something like 2.42%. So instead of saying 2.42%, they're talking about absurd numbers in the billions and trillions. So there's that. Um, And we've talked about the, the folks who are the minions on Wall Street. That's why they want personal retirement savings accounts. That's why the banks want that. Um, exactly. And we've talked about uh, uh, income inequality when we talked about raising the minimum wage, raising middle class incomes. So those were where a lot of my questions were, and I feel like you've already answered most of them. But Let the me one tell thing you one- we haven't talked about is the pension crisis. Okay. And you know more about that than we do, so I'll just want to open that up to you. So let me let me do two things because there's yeah. one that you, you brought up. The obvious reason that they want um, the the private accounts or privatization is so that they can make money off of it. And you only need to look at what just happened in Chile, where the uh, where they they quote unquote privatized their social insurance system, and then lo and behold, 30 years later, um, a few people are now billionaires, and everyone else is left with um, not okay. enough money. And that is what privatization Imagine that. is. Exactly. Huh. But I will tell you this other thing. And this is, you know, I'll argue with some well-meaning folks on the left about this as well. Add-on accounts in any manner are something that I do not think that the left should, should really fight for. Um, so add-on accounts are, you know, President Obama had his proposal. It's the auto IRAs, Right. Um, and that's saying, 
okay, well, people don't save enough, so if we automatically set up these savings accounts for them, that'll be very helpful. And I'm not against saving. I'm all for saving. But if there's going to be a big cost to something, right? If we're going to actually add percentages of payroll into something, do it into Social Security. It's available immediately. And then importantly, it is redistributive. It actually lessens inequality. And Wall Street hates that part of it almost as much as they hate not making money. And so I just want to point that out, that that is one thing that um, Social Security has. Its benefit structure is incredibly progressive. Um, and it, it, it's so progressive, in fact, that it makes up for the regressive nature of the revenue side. So we want to actually work on that on both ends. We want to make the benefits even more progressive, uh, more generous, more progressive. We also want to make the revenue side more progressive. If we could even get it neutral, that would be a good thing. But why don't we go all the way and make have progressive revenue and progressive benefits? And then we can really that the program is massive and it already does a lot. But inequality is such a corrosive asp, uh, thing right now, and it's so huge that we really should be attacking it from all fronts. So Absolutely. sorry, I wasn't I wasn't trying to dodge your pension. Pensions are, pensions, defined benefit pensions are a critical aspect for a person's retirement. Um, the problem is that in Reagan's America, they, uh, they did some changes in laws that made it possible for greedy liars on Wall Street, these parasitic sort of uh, money, um, you know, they're, they're, what, what they would do is they'd see a company and they would... Um, this is like Gordon Gecko era stuff. And they, they would actually call their pensions overvalued assets. Um, and yeah. this is even before leveraged buyouts, but just in the first buyout round, they would target companies that had large pensions, uh, and then they would just loot them. They would literally just suck the money right out of them. They'd carve the company up. It wouldn't be a going concern. And you had all these great American companies turned into, they were hollowed out. They were turned into shells of themselves. And that is probably the The largest factor. Exactly. Once that, you know, business people are not stupid. They saw this happening and then they're like, oh, well, we don't want to have this huge pool of money uh, that attracts these Wall Street raiders in. Um, And at the exact same time, there's this, propaganda campaign uh, to switch to defined contribution plans, which uh, it was a propaganda campaign by Wall Street for Wall Street, uh, and it worked. And so right now what you see is um, most Americans do not have access to a defined benefit pension, uh, and instead they have access to a defined contribution, uh, which is, is that's basically savings again. So they removed pensions and they, they got it back into savings, which it's easier to make fees on. Um, the underfunded pensions that, you know, crop up, you hear that in the news every once in a while. That's, again, that's just propaganda. The main guy who's funding that is a dude who's now a billionaire because of Enron, right? And the, yeah. if you're a billionaire because of Enron, that means you just robbed people of their money, and now you have a billion of other people's money that you stole. And he's spending part of it trying to whip up uh, hatred against people the very few people who still have pensions. Um, if, if we could bail out Wall Street, we could obviously, quote-unquote, bail out 
these pensions that are uh, underfunded by different state governments who are under incredible pressure. Um, it's a it's a propaganda attack, uh, and in fact, pensions are much more affordable in the long run. Uh, and it's something that you know, hopefully, we can move back in a in a direction where we actually. Uh, create a working environment that includes defined benefit pensions for people. I have a yes or no question about what you just discussed. Is clawback a possibility for the pensions that have been rated? Hmm. I don't know. I'm sorry. Um, if you could the, figure that out and come back on the show, because we're out of time, <laughs> we'd love to talk more about that later. Well, that's the reason. You know what? Clawback is the reason why we in MMT are fighting to raise the visibility of modern monetary theory, because clawback is absolutely possible if Washington could come to terms with the fact that we have a sovereign currency, our debt is in our own currency, we can do whatever we damn well please. Uh Exactly. It's a matter of political will. On the theoretical level, the answer is very straightforward, Um, and or... On the political will, right? If we actually build the political will where we take into account um, the American people and the economic security of the American people and not the economic um, security or whatever they have, I don't know, 16 yachts of this billionaire class, then obviously all this is possible. You mean over corporations? Is that what you're talking about? Exactly. And I'd love to come back on um, anytime. So just let me know. And, and uh, there's actually um, Nancy Altman, who is the founding co-director of Social Security Work. She's the pension expert. She's also the chair of the board of the Pension Rights Center. You should talk to her about pensions because it, it is a very, um, it's complicated, but at the same time, very straightforward. And another place where Wall Street has really screwed over the American workers. Well, we'll extend an open invitation to Nancy then. Uh, Folks, you have been listening to Extra Mad on Hopping Mad. Thanks for checking us out. Just a reminder that you can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and our website, imhoppingmad.com. Alex, thank you so much for being on. Thanks for having me.